Module 5, Session 9, Systematic Theology, Ecclesiology 1, What is the Church and What is the Ministry of the Church? And we have just started looking at what is the church, the people of God in history, Genesis 1 to 11, all global stuff, not really talking about the church. The rest of the Old Testament uh, is all about Israel. The church is a mystery still. Gentile salvation, yes. Church, not yet. Now we get to Matthew, Acts, Ma- Matthew through Acts 7 or so. And the emphasis is on Israel, but now it's on the true Israel. Who is a real Israelite? Jesus Christ has come to restore the nation of Israel and to bring blessings to the Gentiles. He presents himself as the king of Israel. And that's, in fact, the whole theme of the Gospel of Matthew uh, is, is Jesus presenting himself as the king. So the message of salvation in the kingdom is proclaimed primarily to the people of Israel. And Jesus says this numbers of times. Let's see where we are. There we are. So he's still going to Israel. Now, part way through Matthew, and, and we'll look at this in more detail another time, but part way through Matthew, Jesus turns away. And this is right at the moment when Israel's leaders officially say, you do your miracles by the power of Satan. And Jesus says, we're done. And he begins preaching in parables. And and I I don't mean to interrupt, but is that Darla? Hi, Darla. It's good to see you. Yay. Future generations listening to this recording will have no idea what we're talking about. You'll find out in heaven. So... The message of salvation is proclaimed to the Jews. And eventually Jesus turns away. Even, you remember the Syrophoenician woman that Jesus said, uh, Jesus said that I didn't come to the Gentiles, I came to the Jews. And I didn't come to the dogs. And it's not being derogatory, it's just a way of saying those that are on the outside. And, And she says even the dogs get to lick the crumbs that fall off the table. And the children's table, and, and Jesus said, that is great faith. And you see that process of him turning to, to the Gentiles. Acts 8, all the way through Revelation 3. Now the emphasis is on the church and on Gentile salvation, not on Israel, which is in a state of temporary partial hardening until the fullness of the Gentiles has come. Frankly, most of the time in the book of Acts, when you see the Jews, they're the opponents of the gospel at that point. They're the ones literally following Paul from city to city to cause riots and to cause problems for his life because he's proclaiming the gospel. But then you get to Revelation 4 all the way to the end of the Bible, and the emphasis shifts once again to Israel. And this is why we, it is always and only appropriate to read Revelation as something yet to happen. It is prophetic. Chapters 1 through 3 um, are in the time of the writing of, of Revelation. Chapters 4 through 22 are future. Because they're all about Israel. And you have to do all kinds of hermeneutic gymnastics to make it mean something else. The emphasis is on Israel and the nations with the church uh, participating and ruling the nations at the very end. Um, the, the term church isn't even mentioned until the very, very end of the book of Revelation. Why? Well, that's reason number 4,211 why we believe in a pre-tribulational rapture. The church is gone. And the church is not the focus at that point. Israel is. Now, why is the church important? few reasons here. The top one is that Christ founded the church. Matthew 16, 18. 
Obviously, that makes it important. Whatever he does is important. Christ purchased the church with his blood. I think that's, that's reason enough for us to always submit to the Lord. That the church belongs to him. It is not ours. Um, this week, this past weekend, I had the privilege of preaching in Joe Divelbus's new uh, church body, and that's what I preached on: that the church is not yours. The church belongs to Christ, and you will obey Christ. The church is the body of Christ. That's important. And I, we use that term so often. I think I use the term "body of Christ" more than I actually say "church." But it's something uh, given to us by the Apostle Paul, and it's a glorious, uh, wonderful metaphor. The church is the body of Christ. We are the extension of Christ on earth. The church is, is the chief instrument for glorifying God in the world. You think our world is bad now? Imagine how it would be if suddenly all the Christians were gone. Oh, you don't have to imagine. First Thessalonians 4 speaks of that day. And what's going to happen? What's going to happen is utter world chaos. Because whether you know it or not, the presence of the church on earth right now is the, is the greatest slowing of sin that we have. Um, what do you think would happen if all the churches in America suddenly disappeared? That's what Satan would like. He tried to do that during COVID, right? And what's happened, as always happens with persecution that Satan causes, it always backfires. You think next time a bunch of governors say churches closed down, you think we're going to go down so easily? It's not going to happen. Because the church slows down sin. We are the chief instrument for glorifying God in the world. We are the ones who have the message of, of eternity. The church is God's instrument for bringing the gospel to the nations in this age. Uh, what a responsibility we have to speak the gospel to those around us. You know, I, I, we pray for our neighbors and, and speaking the gospel to our neighbors is very, very difficult because they're all really, really uh, happy in this world. They have, they have boats and cars and, and things, and they don't sense a need at all. I mean, I even resorted to inviting them because I'm playing trumpet one day. You know, Come hear me play the trumpet. They wouldn't even come for that. But what they don't know and what you, those who, who you speak to don't know is that you are their only hope. The church is the world's hope. We bring the gospel to the nations in this age, starting with our own neighbors. And then the church is important because Christ promised to build his church. Matthew 16, 18. You know, it's interesting, and I, I believe in all the promises to Israel with all of my heart, you know that. Um, but God never promised Israel that they would never, that, that they would uh, always be blessed all the time. He promised them that ultimately they would be blessed forever. But he's never done that with the church. He promised Israel, when you, not if you, but when you reject me and when you rebel against me, I'm going to decimate you. I'm going to take away your land. I'm going to make it to where you're barely existing, hanging on by a thread. You're on spiritual life support until I bring you back. He's never done that with the church. The, the Lord Jesus Christ has built his church. And I know people think that, um, that during the, the great era of the, and I use that word uh, illogically, the great era of the Catholic Church, which went on um, almost a thousand years in the Dark Ages, uh, there's a misnomer that there weren't Christians. That 
that the gospel somehow was revived in the Reformation. No, there were pockets of believers. God was building this church, and, and if you read church history, centuries and centuries before the Reformation actually began, there were wonderful men of God preaching the word and sharing the, the genuine gospel and preparing the way for this explosion in 1517 of truth in the, in the Reformation. So Christ has promised to build this church, and he's been doing it. He's built his church kind of like a, a bamboo plant that it uh, might stay in the ground as a seed for a really, really long time. But when it pokes out, it, it grows like a foot a day. And we have no idea how the church is growing right now, but it, but it is. And Christ has never lost one, not one member of the church of Jesus Christ who is truly regenerate. He's never lost one of them. And, oh, they keep dying. All, all God is doing is collecting kingdom citizens for the great and final day. So he is building his church. And that makes the church important. Now, interestingly, we love the church. But we argue about the church a lot as Christians. I mean, that, the people die over the church. Um, the Catholics think they're the church and they, they were killed Protestants. Some Protestants uh, killed Catholics. That's just church history. That, that was kind of what some of them thought you do. Why is this? I think the main reason, and this is identified really well by Robert Sosi in his book, The Church and God's Program, but the, the main reason is disengagement from the Lord of the church. What did Jesus say to the church at Laodicea? Uh, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. That is not a verse about evangelism. That is a verse about a terrible church that has so forgotten the Lordship of Christ that he pictures himself standing outside going, hey, are you going to let me in? I'm not here. So that disengagement from the Lordship of the church, this disengagement from the Word of God as authoritative, that you preach the Word no matter what, you let the chips fall. One of my heroes of the faith has said famously, and I'll repeat this over and over again, he said, when I got to my new church, I had to preach it down to four before God could start to work. Because he preached the gospel and people left. I, I get a chance to counsel with new pastors um, on, on a fairly regular basis now. And I always tell them the same thing. Don't think everybody's going to be happy. You go preach the word and it's going to be like a lake turning over. That, that all the dirt's going to come to the top. Some will complain, some will leave. And let it be okay. It's, you're there to do some cleanup work. We've disengaged from the concept of obedience to the Lord. What is that called now? It's called legalism, right? Instead of obedience, we, we jump to legalism. Well, you need to, you need to obey the Lord. Well, I'm not a legalist. No, legalism says you please God by doing good things. Obedience says you please God because He has loved you and He has saved you. And those are very, very different. Robert Sosi says this, The chaos over the church today stems primarily from the disengagement of its leaders from the Lord of the church and his pattern of church life. Perplexing questions as to the nature of the church, the role of the ministry, and the very purpose of the existence of the church can be answered only by a return to the origins of the church in the word of its Lord. Progress in the church comes not from advancing beyond the biblical patterns, but from building squarely upon them. And so we, we work really hard to do church, as it were, only the way the Lord of the church has prescribed. And he has given us his word in the New Testament to tell us that. Okay, that's kind of a, a high-level 
foot view. Let's come down a few feet. And let's talk about the church as ecclesia. It's the uh, origin of our term ecclesiology, the study of the church. It originates in the term ekkaleo, which means to call out, and, and it speaks of any assembly. It's originally used, uh, it could speak of calling out an, an army to assemble, any group of people to assemble. In the most general secular sense, ecclesia is just a lot of people gathered together. But like a lot of words, the, the, it comes to have a technical meaning. In the New Testament, ecclesia is used 114 times. 109 of them refer specifically to God's people in the church age. It's only used twice in the Gospels. I've already mentioned this, and both in a futuristic sense. Now, this is pretty important because as you read the Gospel of Luke, for example, Luke doesn't use ecclesia one single time in his Gospel he is also the author of the book of Acts and he uses Ecclesia 23 times. What does that tell you? That the church began shortly after the ascension of Christ. So the group alongside Jesus during his earthly ministry was not the church. They were not. They were in a transitional, in a transitional time. They would still be uh, really considered Old Testament saints. And we like to say that John the Baptist was not the first uh, prophet of the New Testament. He was the last prophet of the Old Testament. He is the final prophet of the Old Covenant. And the, the apostles, they operated still devoid of the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. And you say, well, how did they do anything? Well, they sort of had an advantage because Jesus was right here all the time, which is pretty much the same as being filled with the Spirit, except he had to continually correct them. And and from a human standpoint, when he sent them out to minister by themselves, I have to wonder if Jesus kind of rolled his eyes a little bit and said, wonder how this is going to go. Um, He knew how it was going to go. But when they're without him, they tended to uh, begin to go off track because they weren't filled with the Spirit yet. Were they saved? Eleven of them were. Eleven of them were, but they were still darkened in their understanding. They were Old Testament saints who didn't get it at a high level. The entire Gospel of Mark, one of the major themes in Mark could be the idiocy of the apostles. (laughs) That they just don't get it and don't get it and don't get it. In the Gospel of Mark, three times Jesus says that I'm going to uh, die. I'll be turned over to the the chief priests and the elders and and the scribes. They're going to torture me. They're going to kill me. And then the third day, I'll be resurrected. Three times Jesus does that. If you read carefully in the Gospel of Mark, after every one of those, one or more of the apostles does something stupid. And it illustrates these guys didn't get it yet. Why? Because they're with Jesus, but they're not indwelt by the Spirit. This is why Peter, uh, the apostle of foot-in-the-mouthness, is constantly saying just terrible things. And he's, he's opening his mouth before his brain starts to fire on any level. And in Acts 2, Filled with the Holy Spirit, he stands up and preaches a sermon that to this day is the example of how to preach the Word of God. So, is the church in existence during the time of the apostles during Jesus' ministry? No. The church has not come to existence yet. It's a time of transition. The use of ecclesia in the New Testament happens several ways. It talks about a group of believers in a specific city. 
It can talk about small house churches, still presumably with qualified leadership. Um, by the way, just a little side note here. Um, most of the time in our culture when people say uh, I'm part of a home church could I define that for you home church is usually a bunch of people who don't want to submit to qualified leadership in the real church if you have a group of believers with qualified elders that happen to meet in somebody's house that's a church that meets in a home that's different than a home church so uh, Christians are never given the, the opportunity or they're never given the, the um, permission to say, we, we, we're going to reject the establishment of the church. We're just going to gather together and be Christians together. That is not the church. The church has qualified leaders. The church performs the ordinances of baptism and the Lord's table and the church disciplines the wayward. That's what the church does. That's what the Heidelberg Confession says and I think it's accurate in that. So small house churches considered an ecclesia. So if if you are gathered in a living room, and I've I have been a church planter many years ago and, and spent a lot of time in living rooms, and you got forty people crammed in there, children on the mantle, and you, you just put them everywhere, and, and you got a couple of qualified elders and you're doing the work of the ministries at the church. Absolutely. The New Testament affirms that. Believers in a larger geographical area, the church of Galatia. There's lots of gatherings. The Church of Ephesus, lots of gatherings. Um, we could say the Church of Kern County. Who is the Church of Kern County? Every genuinely regenerate person who lives within the borders of Kern County. That's the Church of Kern County. It can also be a local church gathering. And at some point, uh, churches started naming themselves like their, like their football teams. Um, you know, like we're Grace Bible Church and others name themselves. That was primarily just to designate them as different from another. And, and that makes sense. It's, it's a little odd to me still. I, I'm still not fully in favor of it, but we're not going to change that. It could be everyone saved from Pentecost to the present day. We call that the church universal. Where is most of the church universal? Most of them are in heaven. You realize we're in the minority? They're in heaven going, those poor slobs still down there. They have no idea what's coming. So we're in the minority. We're the little few. The, the heaven is filled with the ecclesia right now from every tribe, tongue, and nation eventually. So that's the church's ecclesia. So let's come down a, a, a few more thousand feet here. Let's talk about the parameters of the church. The parameters of the church. And I'm going to just give you a definition here. Do I have it on the slide? Yes. Parameters of the church. I'm going to see whether we're going to make it today. I don't think we will. That's fine. Um, the church is the new covenant community of God as it exists in this dispensation. Now I'm going to stop right there. Dispensationalism is a bad word, even to most people in our county who, who are in Bible-believing churches. Dispensationalism uh, is a belief system that says two major things, and it's, it's developed over time. So I'm going, to, I'm going to go off track here for just a moment. Two major things. First, that we interpret the Bible with a historical grammatical hermeneutic, that we take the Bible literally as it says. That's the major thing that says you're a dispensationalist. The second thing that says you're a dispensationalist is that God's plan for Israel is not finished. And that he will keep every one of the promises he made to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. That makes you a dispensationalist. Now, where did the word come from? Well, it came from the idea that God has demonstrated his 
redemptive program in different ways throughout history. Uh, old school dispensationalists identified uh, uh, seven dispensations, and I won't go through all of that, but, but you can think of it as, as periods of time or eras or epochs. Um, people who say, well, I don't believe in dispensations, I like to be a little snarky and say, do you believe the Old Testament is exactly the same as the New Testament? Well, no, there's clearly a division there. Then you're a dispensationalist. You believe in at least two of them. Now, old school dispensationalism had some errors to it. We admit that. Uh, Some felt that there was a a different plan of salvation for the Jews than for the Gentiles. We don't believe that. Everyone is saved by faith, by the grace of God from Genesis 1 all the way to Revelation 22. And we understand that. So when we say this dispensation, that is the time period between the day of Pentecost and Acts 2 all the way to the rapture of the church. It has a beginning point that we know about. It has an end point that hasn't been identified yet in terms of time. So the church is the new covenant community of God as it exists in this dispensation between the acts of the events rather of Acts 2, the day of Pentecost, through the rapture of the church prior to the day of the Lord. The day of the Lord is a technical term in Scripture. It can refer to the entirety of all of God's final judgments all the way down to the literal 24-hour day that Christ returns and everything in between. So, so it's a technical term that has lots of flex to it. Who are the constituents? Who, who, is, who makes up the church? The church consists of the believing remnant of Israel and believing Gentiles in this era, again, between the events of Acts 2 and the rapture. The emphasis in this era now is on Gentiles coming to faith through a remnant of believing Israel. Uh, Rather, although a a remnant of believing Israel will continue to exist. That is what Galatians 6.16 calls the Israel of God. And we've done this a thousand times, but it's the best picture I I can imagine. Remember the big circle? The big circle, every Jew who has ever been or will ever be born, the little circle inside that, every Jew who has ever come to faith in Jesus Christ, that's true Israel. That's who God will use to make up the nation someday. So right now, is there an Israel? No, there's not a spiritual Israel. There's a nation of Israel and we're thankful for that, but they're not spiritual Israel. Spiritual Israel is mixed into the church. The, the salt and pepper shakers are, are all mixed up together right now. So uh, if you know a Messianic Jew, that's a privilege, but they're not part of Israel right now. They're, they're kind of the remnants. They'll, they'll help form Israel someday, but not now. And then we'd also say that the church only consists of true believers in Jesus Christ. In this sense, there is a universal church which consists of all true Christians in this era, regardless of geography or time period in which they live since the events of Acts 2. So, how does the universal church manifest itself? It manifests itself right now in the local church gatherings. And I can't emphasize this enough because almost all of you have been raised in a culture, in a, in a church culture, that e- even, even people who aren't raised in church kind of have this assumption that the church exists primarily to reach out to, and, the, and if I could use the word pander, to society, to the lost. Are we called to evangelize? Absolutely. But where does that viewpoint come from? That viewpoint comes from a, a misunderstanding of who the church is. The church does not consist of all the people who gather under a roof on a Sunday. That is not the church. 
The church consists of all the people who gather under a roof on a Sunday who are regenerate and know the Lord Jesus Christ as their Savior. That is the church. You can sit in the building all you want and you will not be part of the church until you come to faith in Christ. My biggest burden as a preacher, besides the sanctification of the saints, my biggest burden are the churchgoers who are in church for 10, 20, 30, 40 years and never come to faith. Because you, you, you're just being vaccinated against the gospel. And that's a dangerous place to be. So the church consists of those who are saved. And, and so who do we... Who do we pander to, so to speak? Our first obligation as the church is to gather as the church. And ironically, if we'll do that, if that's our if 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 we're preaching to believers, if we are doing ministry for and to believers, that's when the unbeliever can come and say, they are totally different than me. And that's when you see even 1 Corinthians 14, somebody walking into a church meeting and seeing something so bizarre to them, so otherworldly, so heavenly, that they fall on their faces and give God glory. So the church becoming like the world makes us useless. The church being totally enamored with Christ and understanding and saying openly, I say this almost every Sunday, that you might be sitting here and not know the Lord Jesus Christ. Because what did Jesus say? He promised that the wheat would grow up with what? With the tares or the weeds. They would grow up together. So, that's that's an important part of our understanding of the church. The church consists of believers, of regenerate people. So, what is the purpose of the church? We'll come down a few more thousand feet. In this dispensation, while the nation Israel is experiencing the temporary judgment of God, the the blinding of of God as a nation as a whole, uh, they're characterized by unbelief. God has sovereignly established His church. We are the instrument to spread the gospel. We are the instrument of kingdom proclamation. The church's purpose is to take the gospel to the world. Now, I know I just said that when we gather together, it's for us. But that's, that's the pattern. We gather. We grow in the Lord. We uh, are, are sanctified, thereby becoming salt and light to the world. But you can't do that if you try to be like the world. So those two go together perfectly. The church's purpose is to take the gospel to the world so that people can be saved. And and I love this phrase, to be qualified to enter Christ's kingdom when it's established. That's what salvation is. Salvation, you don't tell somebody, um, you you could have a better life. You uh, you, You could have more things. You could have more happiness. That's not what Jesus promised. Jesus promised, deny yourself. Take up your cross, which means die to yourself, and follow me. This is why Jesus said that it is very, very difficult for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. Because he's self-satisfied. So we're here to ask the question of the lost. Okay, you have all this stuff, that's great. Are you qualified to enter Christ's kingdom? Because he will return. That's the, that's the question of salvation. Are your qualifications... The mission of the church is to bring glory to God through reaching the lost for Christ, preaching the word of God, and edifying Christians. All of those. And and we're going to go through that in detail uh, either later this morning or, or next time. But that's those all go together. You start with the preached word of God. You're edifying Christians. And by doing so, you are evangelizing the lost. The church is a strategic part of God's plan. 
It becomes the instrument for his truth during this era before the kingdom is established. What is the, what is the church here for? Um, we are living out one of the promises of the Abrahamic covenant. That God promised Abraham that through your offspring, all the nations of the world will be blessed. And, it, you know, we're here in America, so when we trace our lineage, the whole world is here, at least genetically, right? I mean, I, I, I tried tracing my lineage once, and I'm, I'm related to so many people, I'm just, I just put mutt when it says, uh, what are you? That's, I mean, I, I alone could represent that promise to Abraham. And all of you can, because that's what the church is doing right now we're taking the, the gospel to the whole world now to be really clear from Matthew 24 and 25 um, the church is not the one uh, that will take the gospel to every single person or every single corner of the world that will not happen in the church age that only happens during the great tribulation which I believe will be actually the greatest period of evangelism and salvation in earth's history uh, 144,000 Jewish evangelists uh, roaming the earth under God's protection giving the gospel of Christ that's pretty phenomenal um, so that's when every nation every tribe tongue and nation will hear the gospel during that time church is gone you go wait a minute well who's giving the gospel you know, we're going to leave stuff behind, right? I feel like there's a book series by that name. But um, there's going to be Bibles. There's going to be uh, uh, the Lord just sovereignly saving people. And so the, 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 the people of God won't be known necessarily as the ecclesia, but the people of God on earth will accomplish that. So for now, though, we're to do our best to, to get that uh, as good a start as possible. And one of my favorite things about the church, and really, the, the purpose of the church is summed up in this one statement from 1 Timothy 3.15, that the church is the pillar and the buttress or the foundation of the truth. Meaning we have and we proclaim the scriptures. And, and I know we've preached whole sermons on this verse. But just by way of reminder, what does it mean that you're the pillar and the foundation of the truth? Well, let me give you the, the picture behind this, first of all. It's actually, ironically, a, a picture uh, taken from the imagery of a pagan temple. The, the buttress could be foundation stones. It could also be uh, higher up in the structure. But everybody knows what pillars are, right? The, the, you're a pillar. So you imagine that you're a pillar. But how can you be a pillar of the truth? Well, in most pagan temples, the, uh, the structure had all these pillars and on top of it were long pieces of stone or marble engraved with, with the so-called truths about the God of that temple. That the pillars were holding up this truth. That's the way you knew which temple it was. When you're in the ancient Greek world, in certain cities, there's temples everywhere. And they had a way of identifying them. And that was the story of their God engraved on the, on the top of the pillars. And so, what are you? You are a pillar holding up the truth of Scripture. And how do you hold it up? Well, the first way you hold it up is keep learning it. That it invades your life and that you, you, don't, um, you don't neglect the study of the Word of God. You don't neglect hearing sermons. You hold up the truth simply by having it be a part of your life. You pass it on to your children. You pass it on to your neighbors, to your friends. That's, that's the danger of um, seeker-sensitive preaching that, se- that seeks to separate people from truth and make them feel good about themselves. The preaching that says, how do you feel about this? Rather than, let me tell you what God says about this. 
So you're a pillar right now by being here. And some of you, I recognize your faces. This is like your ninth time to sit through BTI. And I'm okay with that because you're being the pillar and the buttress of the truth. You're having it filter through your heart. You're representing the truth. You're going to a church called Grace, what? Bible Church. So that's the purpose of the church. We hold the truth. We hold the truth. And, and the church is the only institution that God has entrusted the Word of God with. By the way, that's one of the great reasons that splinters and divisions among the church works to God's favor. Because if we were one big unified whole, what happens then? That always degrades to heresy. See also the Roman Catholic Church. It always degrades. So the fact that we're splintered in some ways, while that's a pain, uh, it does make it to where we're, we're in silos. That if, if there's ten churches in a, in a town and nine of them reject the word of God, there's still the one that hasn't. And it, and it keeps that truth being held up. And so God uses even those divisions um, for his purposes. Well, let's come down a little bit farther. Let me check my time here because I might want to do some, some questions. Now, let's, let's keep going here. What's the relationship to Israel? We can make this really simple. The church is not Israel. So, moving right along. Now, we'll, we'll stay on this for a minute. The church is not Israel, but we're in close and historical redemptive relationship with Israel. Uh, let me illustrate this the easiest way I know. I have one brother... Uh, one little brother, he's five years younger than me, and, and, and we tortured each other growing up. We loved each other, but we tortured each other. But at the end of every day, at the end of the day, we always knew that we were on the same side. We had a difficult family life, and so we, we bonded. We we're very close even to this day. Now, we're close. If somebody told my brother, <clears throat> you are your older brother, first of all, he would say, don't insult me like that. I don't want to hear that. Are we a lot alike? We're a lot alike. We're the only two people living that remember our parents. We're, we, we have shared memories. We have so much in common. We share DNA. Our, our voices are similar. We're talking to them on the phone. It's like talking to yourself. His, his kids look like they could be my kids and vice versa. We share a lot. But we're not the same. So the church is kind of like the little brother of... Israel. We, we came along later. We're highly related, but not the same. I've already spoken of this. We participate in the Abrahamic covenant and in the new covenant. The believing remnant of Israel in this age and the believing Gentiles represent the one new man concept of Ephesians 2.15. Now, what does that mean? Does the one new man concept mean, oh, we're just all one uh, homogenous people of God? No. It means we all share the same blood, the blood of Christ, and we all share the same name, Christian. It doesn't mean that, that Israel is not Israel and the church is not the church. We're, we're both. And, and the question always is, well, what about a, a Jewish believer in Christ? Where does he fit in? Uh, you remember the MasterCard symbol? The two circles with overlap? He gets the blessings of both. That's the best I can say. Mm. While the fullness of the Gentiles has been completed, or when the fullness of the Gentiles has been completed, rather, there will be a time when all Israel will be saved. Romans eleven twelve. What does that mean? It means that every Jew who has been elected by God unto salvation will come to faith in Christ. And at that point, Israel is complete. 
The Christian Jew can be identified as part of both the church and the nation of Israel. Um, we, we call that dual citizenship. I have a daughter with dual citizenship. So we understand that. What is the future of the church? After the coming of Christ, those who have comprised Christ's church will have positions of authority over the nations, which is part of Christ's reward for faithful service. So if you don't want to serve in the church now, you'll serve later, um, just at a lower position. So serve now. The church will rise from persecution to positions of authority. We talked about this a couple of weeks ago. Uh, Revelation 2, 26 and 27 gives this promise. That the church, we're the underdogs right now, right? We're, we're the ones people laugh at. Um, d- d- there's a new term. It's I believe, has originated in California. The term is religious persecution. But you know what religious persecution is starting to mean when liberals use the term? It's, it's starting to blow up on, on uh, uh, social media. Religious persecution means when Christians spread the gospel. That's religious persecution. So we're the underdogs. We're the, we're the enemy. Um, how many times in history have Christians been murdered and killed wholesale? It's happened over and over again. But your future is that that's going to flip-flop that we will live in a completely Christianized society. We won't make that happen. The church has tried over and over again. It's never going to happen. Uh, It won't happen at the midterm elections. It won't happen in two years when we elect another sinner. It it doesn't matter. It'll happen when Christ returns and he appoints people into authority. That's when it'll happen. I think I'm going to... um, kind of stop right there because I want to take a few questions uh, although I might answer them next time we'll do um, module 5 session 9 part 2 next time because I want to get into the nature of the church but I want to find out if you have any questions or, or comments about the church